We have been learning recently the obligations of husbands to wives and wives to husbands. We talked about the laws of Choshen Mishpat more than any other type of laws. The laws that are based in really in monetary obligations between the husband and the wife. We also touched upon the respect that each member of the family is required to show each other. And of course, the mandates of halacha cannot actually control what uh, respect that should be shown, but the guidelines are definitely given in halacha. Today we will discuss the halachas that relate to minhagim, customs, that are based on personal practice. Very often a wife marries a husband, the woman marries a man, whose customs are different she might come from a, an Ashkenazi home, he might come from a Sephardi home, or vice versa. He might come from a Hasidish type of home, she might come from a Misnagdish type of home. What would be the laws in such a case? Who should be the, as it were, the dominant one in the world of Halacha? Or is it preferable for them each to keep their own ways? The Gemarim of Metziah, Daphne Tess, has a case where they bring two psukim. In one sentence, <coughs> it seems to be that the woman should be the dominant voice in the family. Basically, what she says goes. On the other hand, the Gemara quotes that the husband is the one who sets the tone in, in the house, and he should be the decisor of all decisions. The Gemara says that there are a few possible differences between the two cases. At the end, the Gemara says, Lokasha. The Gemara says there is no contradiction between them because they are talking about two different things. One is talking about Mili Dishmaya, and one is talking about Mili Da'alma. And Mili Dishmaya, which would mean the holy area, the area of law, spiritual concepts, the husband is the one who should set the tone. Whereas in Mili Da'alma, in the mundane day-to-day life of the world, the wife is the one who decides what goes on in the house. If there's a question about anything to do with the house, not halachic, not spiritual, the husband should listen to his wife. This decision seems fairly clear-cut. The real issue will be that sometimes it's not easy to note the difference between the two. When I learned this Gemara many years ago in the Shiur of Rebaran Salavechik, Zechatzadik Levracha, when we got to this Gemara, he told a story about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. We know that Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was the father of the Muslim movement, and as such, he was a paragon of virtue in his own right, and, uh, of course, his sitkus requires no elaboration on my part. On the one hand, his students, who were Musunikim, were very much involved in watching the deportment of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, and as uh, is the want of certain students, they would uh, really sort of check on his behavior and see, and what he does, and if necessary, discuss it with him. 
One time the students overheard an argument between Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and his wife. And so these type of students don't hesitate. They immediately approached Rabbi Yisrael and said, how could you possibly argue with your wife? Isn't there a Gemara that says if it's midi dishmaya, spiritual things, then the husband is right. And if it's mili da'alma, and if it's mundane things, the woman is right. Right is actually not the right word. The question is, to whom do we, you, should you listen? So Yisrael Salanter smiled and said, well, I'll tell you. The actual discussion that we were having is whether, what we should eat for supper tonight. My wife wanted to serve rice, and I wanted to serve, I wanted to eat potatoes. So the students looked at him, ah, Rabbi Israel, I mean, you know, this is a classic mili dalma. This is a question of the household. How could you possibly disagree with your wife? Mili dalma, we listen to the wife. So Rabbi Israel smiled and said, what bracha do you make on potatoes? Everybody knows. The bracha for potatoes is bari priyadama. What's the bracha on rice? Everybody knows that bracha on rice is actually a very difficult halachic issue. Some say you say one bracha, some say you say another bracha. Because of this machlokas, we come up with a strange solution that although we make a bari meimenzonos to eat rice, we do not make a bracha chron at the end. It seems to be a contradiction. If we make Brahim Zanos, then you should ask in that you say a bracha chrona. But because of the uh, doubts involved in this, uh, in what is rice exactly, so we've come up with this sort of a compromise. So Yisrael said, you see, I don't want to eat rice because I don't want to be involved in this halachic decision. I want to ask in clearly, a clear-cut decision what bracha I make when I eat supper. And therefore, I insist upon eating potatoes. My, my wife said, this is the mili de alma. This is a, a question what we eat. It's up to me to decide. So what is our actual argument? The argument is whether this is mili de shmaya or mili de alma. It also helps to recall the story that's told. I wasn't there, but it's re- re- reported that Rav Shlomo Zalman said at the levaya of his wife that it is customary to ask mechila from your wife from your spouse at the at the Levaya. And he said that I really don't know what I should if I should do that because you assume that during your life you did something wrong, you hurt someone and therefore you ask Mechila. He said our whole life we lived according to the Shochanarach. Before we got married we decided we would live according to the Shochanarach. And we never deviated from what the Shochanarach said. So I don't, don't know if I did anything that for which I should ask Mechila. If it would be some other type of person, such a statement would seem uh, very uh, arrogant. From, from Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, it just sounded like a, a, a true example of what, the way a tzaddik and his wife live together in harmony. Mili Dishmaya, we listen to him. Mili Alma, we listen to her. So, this question would come up in cases of minhagim, probably more than any other issue. This particular topic is well expounded and developed in the book of Rav Yaakim Ellenson. Rav Yaakim Ellenson was a scholar who taught in Barilan, among other places, a Talmud Chacham who dealt 
with issues of Haishava Mitzvot, and he wrote a trilogy, three volumes about Haishava Mitzvot, and one volume is called Ish Ishto, relations between husbands and wives, and he brought all the sources regarding this question. I will generally use his sources uh, that are found in the book Sefer Shalishi of Haishava Mitzvot. In cases of Minhagim, to whom should you listen? A wife becomes married and we look at it as if she enters the rishus of her husband. In general, the concept of marriage is beso. When the Torah says, by a Kohen, by the Kohen God on Yom Kippur, it says, the Kohen Gadol attains Kapara for him and for Basel. The Gemara says, Basel Zoishto. The concept of bias refers to the family. From here we learn that the Kohen Gadol has to be married. In Bas Isha Nadara, we learn in Parshas Matos that a woman makes a neder in Bas Isha, in the house of her husband. In fact, we've been discussing for a while that how do you actually accomplish Nesuin? as opposed to Ewesin, as opposed to the halachic engagement. How do you do Nesuin? Nesuin is done by moving into your husband's house. How do you do that exactly? What type of uh, action is done to reflect this concept of moving? So that's why we discussed if it's Yichud, if it's standing under the chuppah, or taking it to the chuppah, all the different variations of the Rishonim that discuss exactly what is chuppah, have one thing in common. The idea, basically, is that the wife moves into the rishus of her husband. Now, if this is true, what would happen in such a case for Minhagim? Rav Ellenson points out that in early sources, in Talmudic sources, the uh, this issue is not well addressed. Of course, the Gemara that I did quote in Bav Metziah about Mili Deshve Mili Dalma should apply, and that Gemara, to the best of my knowledge, was not brought by Rabbi Ellenson. But he does begin by quoting the Gemara in Psachim, the famous Mishnah that, of course, has become famous for other reasons, which I will just mention briefly. The Gemara, the Mishnah says, some places have a minig to do one thing, some places have a minig to do another. And in the fourth parak of Psachim, the parak is called Mokam Shanagu. In some places they have a custom to do one thing, in some places have another. For example, there the discussion about there's places where they do Malach on Erev Pesach, some places which refrain from Malach on Erev Pesach. So if you're in a place where you have the one custom exists, obviously you have to follow that custom. But the question, of course, is when you, when you move from one place to another. A person moves from a place, Shenoagu, where the custom was to do malacha, moves to a place where they cannot do malacha. Can he, or vice versa? What should he do? So the Mishnah says that he should accept the, both chumras. He should accept the more stringent opinion in both cases. If the minig in the place to which he's going is more stringent, then he accepts that. If where he left is more stringent, he should accept that. Of course, the halacha will depend, and that's the way we paskin, that it would depend how long he is his sojourn away from his home. This is 
this is only if a person wants to go and travel back and forth. But if a person moves, he picks up his entire possessions and moves to another place, then he certainly becomes a member of the new community. The Rush says there in, in, in Psachim that if a person moves to a new community, bein l'chumra, bein l'kula. Whether it's the more stringent opinion or the more lax, the simple opinion. In both cases, he follows the custom to which he has moved. And he says, for example, Rav Zera went on Aliyah, and therefore, he passed him according to the people of Eretz Yisrael. And um, obviously there are sources in Chulin and other places that show that Rav Zera accepted the customs of the new community. Uh, this, of course, Halacha achieved wide uh, discussion and renown because of the classic question of people who move from Merit, from Chutzlaretz, go on Aliyah to Yisrael today. In Chutzlaretz, they kept two days Yantif. Minig of Chutzlaretz. Minig of that we keep two days of Yantif. You come on Aliyah to Yisrael, well, they keep one day. So the Minig is that since you're not going back, so you take the din of the makam shahalach l'sham. You have the, the the din of the place to which you came. Ben lekula, ben lechumra. So in this particular case, you only keep one day yamtov. All the different questions of two days yantif and one day yantif in terms of travelers and people of apartments, people who come very often for yantif are obviously not within the scope of this particular shiur, but the source for the whole discussion is this Mishnah and Psachim with the Rishonim and Poskim about this issue. So now, what happens when a woman moves to a new community? So if she would move to a new community, the customs would be according to the new community. Ben Lekula, Ben Lechumra. So the Tajbeits said, if a, if a man from one community, so we said, let's say he's a Hasidisha, and he belongs to the Hasidisha community, so, the Tajbeit said, there's no doubt that the woman is included with the husband in all those customs, and he employs the famous phrase, Ishto Gagufa, because he and his wife merge into one unit, and therefore, they certainly have to, she should accept his customs. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in Igros Moshe, Chedek Aleph, the first volume of Arachayim, Simen Kufnun Ches, exactly says that a woman goes into the shus of her husband. He points out that the concept of a woman entering the shus of her husband doesn't mean that a husband can force her to go to work, that he can subjugate her. We've discussed this question before in, in terms of the Choshen Mishpah type of halacha, in terms of the Dini Mamonos, the monetary laws, what can a husband expect, what, she, what are re- re- required from each of them. But Rav Moshe says even, that has nothing to do with our concept. It doesn't mean that she's a Rishus from the husband, that somehow she's like chattel, chas v'shalom. But it does mean that she moved into her house. And Rav Moshe says, Ze'ikar Nesuin, the essence of Nesuin is that she moves into her house, to his house. And there is no greater movement from place to place, the, that Mishnah Psachim, Holech Mimakim Lamakam, than moving in marriage. And obviously, this is considered a permanent move. We discussed in the Mishnah, if you go 
and you plan to go back, or you plan to return, or you plan to go ain't that tolak. So you do not plan to go back. Obviously, every married couple, the hope is that they'll build a binyan adayat, that this chasana will last ad shana. So therefore, the woman cannot think she's going back. Therefore, Reb Moshe says, it's obvious that she should keep her husband's minhagim. He said, even in a place where there is no accepted custom of the community, but her husband's house has a, uh, has a custom, there she should accept her husband's customs. For example, Reb Moshe says in New York, What's the minig of New York as far as uh, various minhagim go? Obviously, minhagim, the minig of New York is very dependent upon where you live, who you live, what to what community you belong, where you daven, etc. So, Amisha says, but it makes no difference. The house of their husband is considered the new community, and therefore, whatever her husband's custom is, a woman should accept that custom. Moreover, Amisha says, there's no din of hataras nadarim. I've never heard of a a person who said, came with Aliyah, and all of a sudden did Hatar Sadarim to say he should only keep one day Yantif. People moved there to Israel, keep one day Yantif. And Mesha said, you don't need Hatar Sadarim. It's a new situation. It's not that you're changing your nether, you're not uprooting your nether. Mesha says he doesn't even think that Hatar Sadarim would be, would be applicable in such a case. But you don't require Hatar Sadarim. Ravavadi Yosef, who of course uh, belonged to a different community, the Sephardi community, so he said that uh, he also agrees with the Psak that a woman enters the Rishus of her husband and therefore his hugging should be dominant. But he does say that it would be better to do Hataras Nadarim, that you should have go to a Bezdin and have Hataras Nadarim. Rev. Ovadia, of, of course, discusses the classic Ashkenazi Sephardi issues. For example, a, an Ashkenazi girl would marry a Sephardi fellow. Let's say she comes from a family, an Ashkenazi family, that they don't, do not eat kidneys in Pesach. And then she comes to her husband's house, and he's a Sephardi who does eat kidneys. So, Rev. Ovadia says, she certainly can cook for him. And she certainly is allowed to eat kidneys. If she doesn't want to eat kidneys, well, I think that it wouldn't be appropriate for the husband to insist that she eat kidneys. Why, why should he care if she does eat kidneys or not? He would be interested that she should not object to having kidneys in the house and to even serving kidneys. But Rev. Avadi says she's allowed to eat kidneys. But if she wants to be machmir, if she prefers the chumrah, of uh, not eating kidneys, she is entitled to do that. So, they, everybody seems to agree that family customs go by the husband. When I talk about family customs, I'd like to point out that I mean minhagim, and I do not mean chumras. What do I mean by chumras? Ramesha says, he raises a question uh, in Evan Ezer, Chelek Beis, Simon Yud Beis. Again, this is quoted by Rabbi Ellenson in, in, in this book, Ha'ishava uh, Mitzvot, 
Ish ve'ishto. The case raised was a husband insisted that his wife not wear a shaitl. He insisted that she cover her hair with a head covering, with a hat, or whatever head covering she should use, but not a shaitl. Now it's known that a shaitl in many custom, in many uh, households is considered preferable. And there are certain people who say that a shaitl is forbidden. You must cover your, your if you wear a a shaitl, you have to wear a head covering on top of your shaitl. Rav Avadia is known that his psak is that women should cover a shaitl. If they want to wear a shaitl, they could wear as long as they wear another head covering as well. Uh, they used to say, Rav, Rav, Rav Avadia, Asar uh, Tapeya. The Rav Avadia for, for bad gave an Easter and wearing a peya. Now, this particular husband has a custom that he felt he did not want his wife to wear a peya. So, the woman wanted. So, Rav Meisha says, that's a chumrah. That's your chumrah. But this is not a, a, a minik hamakam. This is your particular chumrah. And it's her law. It applies to her. Therefore, you have no right to object. And if she wants to, <coughs> you cannot be machmer. She is allowed to wear the peya. Of course, this particular issue is unique in the fact that it only applies to the women. It has nothing to do with the family as a whole. Whereas in the case of kitneos, the question is what you surface up or what you have on the table. It's a family issue. In this particular issue, Reb Meisha said that you don't have to listen, the woman does not have to listen to her husband. I think, though, we could extend this to the concept of chumras and not a place, concept of makam shanagu. It doesn't mean that a particular chumra held by a person is a din of makam shanagu. Noago. Uh, the Minchas Yitzchak points out that this is true. In terms of Chumr Sabal, a husband uh, does not have the right to insist that his wife follow her, his, his customs. On the other hand, Rav, he says, the Dayan of, of Manchester, Rav Weiss, the author of Minchas Yitzchak, Zeichet Tzadik Levracha, says that that would be true when a case when the husband doesn't mind that his wife lives her life without the chumrah of her husband. But if he does insist upon it, so Chachamim say, and he quotes the Rambam that we discussed last week, in terms of kavod, in terms of family respect, in terms of mutual admiration, it would be better for a woman to acquiesce to the to the needs of her husband, to the wishes of her husband. This certainly is a, uh, a, a type of a Muslim statement that I said last week, uh, in, term, term, in terms of today's society, in today's understanding, we would have to understand how this would fit in. But it seems that from the language of the Menachas Yitzchak, that according to strict din, a husband does not have the right to impose his chumras upon his wife. If uh, somehow this will lead to controversy in the family, to some sort of discord, so then it would be better for women to be polite and listen, etc., etc. But mitzad adin, based on technical law, a husband does not have the right to impose his chumras on, on his wife. Of course, this will also raise the issue exactly what's considered a chumra. The same way we mentioned before, that the discussion, what's considered mili dishmaya, 
and what's considered merely the alma could be a bone of controversy. Exactly, what's a chumrah? I was once involved in a discussion with a, a, a young lady who got married, and she told me that her husband insisted that she keeps the opinion of Rabbi Nutam for Shabbos, and that she refrains from eating chadash in chutzlaretz. Now, it seems to me that most people in the world, in the from world of New York, do not keep Rabbeinu Tan. Most people in the communities of New York do not observe Chadash. Whatever the reasons, halachic reasons, of uh, Rabbeinu Tan versus the Gaonim, or Chadash, and the Kula of the Bach, the Sveik Sveika, etc., is not the question right now. I'm just mentioning two Chumras, that in one particular case, the husband insisted. Now, if he got, if, if when they got married, for example, he made a, a tnai by the Kedushim, he said, I'm Mekadish you with the condition that such and such, so then that's a different question. That's a question in general in Tnaim of Eresin and Nesuin, how they work. But here, if we insist, if we say that it's based on the concept of Mili Dishmaya, the husband sets the tone, the question really would be, does he have the right to set the tone and require his wife to do these particular things, which look like Chumras in terms of the world? When I mentioned this to the, to the husband in question, he said to me, I don't understand. It's not a Chumra, it's a Din. The Shulchan Aruch Paskins, like Rabbeinu Tam, that you're not allowed to eat you're not allowed to be to end Shabbos until the time of Rabbeinu Tam. And many, many poskim, it's actually very difficult to f- explain the heter of eating Chadash and Chutzar. It's many poskim, paskim, that you're not allowed to eat Chadash. I said, this is not a Chumrah. This is a Din. So, even though the theory of the issue is fairly clear, Rabbi Meisha's decision that Minhagim, you do have to follow your husband, in Chumas you don't, I can imagine there would be a source of controversy sometimes as to what is considered a Chumra and what is sometimes considered a Din. The fact that a, a woman enters the Rishus of her husband and therefore she's somewhat obligated to his customs is mo- furthermore reflected in a very famous halacha. The Din, of course, is that man and woman are both obligated in the halach of kibbutz avay, in respecting parents. There are two halachas involved. There's kavod and mora, respect for your parents and the type of awe that a person should feel as regards his parents. Now, in, as regards to the mitzvah of, of mora, it says ish imova viftiro. Ish, imo, v'aviv tiro. The Gemara explains, Ish, ain't ish? If the Torah specifically said man, male, then how do I know women are obligated? So the Gemara says tiro. That's why the Torah said tiro in a plural. Ish, imo, v'aviv tiro, to include women. A man is obligated in, in mora, and so is his wife. So the Gemara says, if that's true, so why did the Torah say ish? Why did the Torah say man, which would lead me to think only males are required and women are not required, then the Torah has to tell me, no, women are required? The Gemara answer is because Ish 
Isha ain't sipek A man is always obligated in this mitzvah. He always can fulfill this mitzvah. But a woman cannot always fulfill this mitzvah. Why? Because sometimes she has other demands on her time and she cannot always free herself of those obligations to take care of her parents properly. Now, of course, this Gemara is referring to the Pasuk of Mora. And it seems strange that in terms of Mora, which basically is a negative concept, have all of your parents and therefore do not contradict them, do not sit in their seat, etc., etc., would be a problem for a married woman. The Torah Tzmima and other Mefarshim on the spot try to explain that this Pasuk, even though it's referring to Mora, must be learned as if it's referring to Kavod, which makes much more sense. Kavod is positive. A woman, the general halacha of Kavod would be machileyu, mashkeyu, motziyu, machniso, to give personal assistance to parents when needed, cook their food, prepare their food, serve them. And there I can understand that a woman has family obligations. She has uh, a family of four children who are waiting for supper. Her husband came home from work, would like to eat. And let's say that she's a housewife. Obviously, in terms of working, we have to, working women, the household has to be arranged according to their schedule. But in the, assuming that she is a housewife, a husband comes home from work, there are children waiting for supper, it wouldn't be uh, conducive to Shalom Bayis if the woman would pick up and leave and go because her father needs her at this particular time. So the would be interpreted that in case of Kavod, a woman would be exempt from Kavod at certain times because Rishus Baalolel. She somehow has entered her family domain. So this halacha should prove our point that when a woman is married, she's considered to have moved from her parents' house into her new house, and therefore, as far as Minhagim, as far as even Kibbutzav goes, she somehow belongs in her new house rather than in her old house. Of course, this is a purely theoretical discussion. In practical terms, don't we see that generally the married women are the ones that take care of their parents. Somehow we have the concept the ways of Torah pleasantness. It would be best not to insist upon the letter of the law in all these cases, but to work things out properly. And from my experience I've seen that when parents become aged and need more help, very often they move into their children's houses if they are sons and daughters, so it would seem, according to strict halacha, the parents should move into their son's house. The son is still obligated in kibbutz avayim. But nevertheless, I think we generally see that the parents move into their daughter's house, who technically is not obligated, and her husband theoretically could insist that she not take care of them. But as I said, Baruch Hashem, the ways of the Torah are pleasant, and the strict letter of the law should not be adhered to when the husband should coerce his wife into doing things that are not appropriate. is a very important guiding light in our in our halachic world.